difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, and Scott Tobias. In our last episode, we talked about David Byrne's True Stories, a 1986 movie overview of a fictional Texas small town where the air is clear, the radio reception is great, and the people are straight out of supermarket tabloids. Literally, because the film was inspired by a series of tabloid articles. But the film doesn't feel like the kind of manic statement of oddity that belongs on the shelf next to the Weekly World News. It's charmingly sincere and straight-faced, with a kind of wide-eyed wonder at the world. Byrne's stage show American Utopia, and the new filmed version of the show directed by Spike Lee, has a harder, more defiant edge than True Stories, particularly where it touches on current American topics like low voter turnout, or the growing protest movements against police violence against unarmed black civilians. It's also a much more traditional concert film than True Stories, with Byrne and an ensemble performing the songs from his solo album American Utopia, barefoot and on a bare stage, switching out instruments and dancing as they play and sing but it's still marked by the same sincerity, and it's visibly the same mindset and character. It's the work of somebody who works intuitively and metaphorically, and often in what seems like non-sequiturs. As Byrne himself explains it in a write-up of what went into developing the show, I often get asked, what is this show about? What is this song about? What is the message? What are you trying to tell us? My preferred answer would be to refer them to the quote from old-school Hollywood producer Samuel Goldwyn, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. It seems to me in the creating something, a song, a show, a blog post, a meal, a dance, a vision comes together, intuitively, gradually, bit by bit, little by little, and we don't always know the totality of what we've made until we can actually see, hear, and taste it. A few years ago, I did a show that involved high school color guards, and it wasn't until I watched a run-through that I realized the show was about inclusion. The same thing is true of many of the songs I write. If we're lucky during this process, we've remained true to some unconscious guiding principle. We often know what that is, even if it's hard to articulate in the moment. It was that way with this show. It wasn't conceived all at once, but rather, one part of it led to the next. It evolved organically, and as soon as one element was resolved, the next one presented itself. A new puzzle and mystery to be solved. So we can talk here all we want about the intent behind American Utopia, or behind true stories for that matter. Just be aware that we're also talking about somebody who follows his muse first and asks questions afterwards, who works from the hip and from his emotions. That explains a lot about the feel of American Utopia and about how we should take the experience. But we'll dig into our equally intuitive, from-the-hip responses to it after this. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage except the stuff we care about the most? Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us. And you. And that's what the show is. Everybody's coming to my house. Everybody's coming to my house. I'm never gonna be alone. And I'm never gonna go back As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are. It extends beyond ourselves to the connections between all of us. So what was everybody's experience with American Utopia? 
I was lucky enough to see the show live, oh, wow. uh, yeah. the tour, uh, when it was in Chicago, which is different from the uh, Broadway show in some ways that yeah, I'm sure we'll get into. There's, there were uh, none, I believe, of the spoken word interludes, uh, although the set list was much, much the same. But it was one of the most amazing concerts I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so uh, just, you know, just uh, for all the reasons you see in the film, uh, I don't want to just be like, you know, I was there and you, <laughs> you weren't. So nah, nah, nah. But because you do get a lot of that from the film. But it was quite the thing to see live. I've got to say, it was just, I, I, and I did not even know the concept going into it. So to realize that it was going to be wireless, intricately choreographed, and yet an, an exhilarating experience, the thrill of discovery was something there. Yeah, I did not see the, this live, but this movie, I loved it so much. Like, like this was a, <laughs> exhilarating is a good word for it. Cathartic is another really good word for it, especially like from burning down the house onward. This movie sticks the landing really, really, really well. I mean, it's great before then, but uh, and there's definitely high points prior to that. But it's like from burning down the house forward, it's just like all high points. And I think I was probably in tears for that like final 20, 25 minutes. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I do chalk it up mostly to what I refer to as spectacle tears, which is something I get uh, at pretty much every Broadway show I've ever seen. So that I think that was definitely a factor here. But also just like I said, the, the catharsis of how this show builds of course, the how you talk about say his name, say her name performance, which mm. I mean, if you don't feel something during that, like, I don't think you should be watching this movie. And I have rewatched parts of this movie several times. It's been kind of playing in the background in my house for the past couple weeks, just like in, in segments. Like there's, it's a, a wonderful feeling to dip into because it is, you know, it's heartfelt without being sentimental. It's intellectual without being, you know, self-important. And the music is so damn good. I mean, hmm. you know, you can, it's hard not to move watching this, listening to it, but also just watching it and the quality of movement in the performers, not just Byrne himself. Obviously, Byrne has a very sort of distinctive style of, of dance that we're probably most familiar with from Stop Making Sense. And there's definitely sort of callbacks to how he dances there in, in this film. But the choreography is something else entirely. And it's not quite Broadway choreography. Uh, there's definitely a little like bit of performance art to it. But the two dancers he has on stage, all the people he has on stage are it just like incredible and unique, but they in particular, the two dancers who wait, let me, Chris Giarmo and Tendai Kumba. I hope I'm pronouncing both of those correctly. I know he says them in the film, but both of them, I think, are just fascinating sort of additions to the burn aesthetic and performance style throughout. And there's so much more I, I like about this movie, but I'll let someone else talk. Yeah, I, I loved it too and ended up seeing it twice because it was just felt so great to watch it. <laughs> you know, it was just like it's just it's just such an oasis right mm. now. And and the thing Good that word. was interesting to me about it is that we discussed Hamilton on the show and talked about how Hamilton is so much an Obama era statement that whatever optimism you know that Obama brought to the table was kind of like channeled through that show and it kind of made it disconcerting to watch it now <laughs> you know it feels naive mm -hmm. a little more naive now but the thing about American Utopia is that it is a Trump era film that is defiantly 
optimistic and defiantly in defense of a certain set of values while also not being naive to the realities outside you know its borders it's not a show that is denying things in the world that are ugly and disturbing either but it is still expressing the validity of certain values of inclusion of peace of empathy empathy anti-racism i mean it's all you know everybody coming to my house or whatever is, is, is it's all so and it's just so moving i mean that defiance you know the spirit of the thing the just the, the way everybody looks on stage i mean just the vision that it represents is heartening and it, it just felt great i just i love that and i love that it's being released right now it just it, you know i think it, people should watch it just to kind of people i guess of uh, who who respect those the values it represents should watch it it's it's affirmative and, and empowering and i don't know i loved it a lot of my friends lately have been talking about the pleasures of competency porn, just mm. the joy that comes at this point, <laughs> particularly watching some of the things we've seen lately in our administration dealing with coronavirus, just the kind of sense of, are there adults left? Does anybody know what they're mm. doing? The disorganization and chaotic blame spreading kind of thing that we've just seen so much in our government response to so many things over the last four years. There is a deep-seated pleasure in just watching people who are exceptionally good at something do that thing and like do it without hesitancy and do it well. And uh, you know, like you guys know me, I'm a cynic. I'm very hard to satisfy. I don't emotionally engage with a lot of things that other people emotionally ga- engage with. I started crying during the first number. Um, that makes me so happy for you, Tasha. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was very cathartic, and it it started with just the almost fatherly tone of David Byrne explaining the human mind to us, like he's literally. Holding up a model of a brain and speaking while well, singing, um, just very clearly to the audience about how the brain works, about all of these creative parts and how they come together. And then the dancers come out behind him, and like together, they and Spike Lee just start creating these really memorable physical images and moments. And just like the sheer competency of it, the sheer artistic value of people in a moment like this, creating something so articulated and clear and passionate and different, like nothing I'd really seen before. Uh, It was just, it was emotionally overwhelming. And I didn't get that nearly as much throughout the rest of the film, but uh, yeah, the hell you talking about? I, I, like, I started crying during that, uh, that song and I barely feel like I let up during the, uh, the rest of the film. It was just so emotionally strong. There's just something about seeing people, you know, as well as competent at what they're doing, uh, seeing people who are passionate uh, in that way. Like an awful lot of cinema operates at a remove. You know, you're telling a story, you're consciously putting on a play. The characters like are experiencing the emotions, trying to make you feel the emotions, but they're not talking to you directly in the way Byrne is talking to people like directly, both in the audience and behind the camera during this show. And so much of American Utopia is performed directly to the viewer in a way that ends up just feeling, yeah, as, as Scott said, affirmative, but also just really intimate uh, in a really like comforting and uh, a connective sort of way. I really dug this concert. I don't care for concert films for the most part. Like I rarely feel like they connect me with the performers or the music much, but 
not too long into this, I turned to my husband and I said, when live music is a thing again, we need to get back mm. into going to concerts. <laughs> they just all have to be as good as David Byrne's, yeah. like fully yeah, that's, uh, that's, elaborately that's conceptualized uh, stage shows. And if you could like turn into Spike Lee's camera as you watch it, like from behind the like through the chain curtains or from above, so you can see the amazing like perfect choreography. Like I've talked on this podcast before about how much I love Passing Strange, which is another Spike Lee filmed musical. We actually considered pairing it with this, but that didn't work out for for various reasons. But actually, I've talked about a couple of Spike Lee's film stage productions on this show, and I'm I'm a big fan of how he films stage productions. And, you know, especially with this, as well as Passing Strange for that matter, like there's not a whole lot on stage in terms of sets and costumes and, you know, sort of production value. But both this and Passing Strange are very just performance. You know, there's uh, Passing Strange is also kind of centered on a single performer, in that case, Stu, and surrounded by this sort of ensemble, like bringing his words to life, sort of similar to what you have here. And I think Lee is just very adept at capturing, I guess, the intimacy that Scott is talking about. You know, this isn't a all wide shots, like giving you every single part of the stage at any given time. Like it's more about finding these little moments of, of connection between the people on stage and between the people on stage and the audience. And the way that he finds those, the way that his camera finds those is, you know, it's just an added layer to this experience. I mean, I've got to assume that seeing this live is, you know, pins you in your seat with the power of the music. But at the same time, this is also just a really, really good way to see it because Mm -hmm. of those angles that you're not actually going to get seeing it in the theater because the camera gets so up and personal with Byrne as he's selling the emotions on these things that he's trying to communicate, like these metaphorical, like allegorical, emotional, instinctive, intuitive things that he talks about in his intro to the show that he talks about like a little bit in the show itself. He really kind of sells a lot of that with his body and his face, as well as his voice. And the intimacy of this film, I feel like just really makes you feel like you're on stage with him, like he's playing directly to you in the midst of uh, everything that's going on. Uh, we weren't pinned in our seat. We were we were on our feet. I really did appreciate the bird's eye view of of, uh, of the choreography too. Um, I mean, it's almost like it was meant to be seen that way. So it was it was neat to actually get the view from above. It's really interesting the choreography of the show itself. Just how many things they find to do with like a relatively small space, no props, no background, except uh, musical instruments and the table and brain in that first uh, that first thing. And the lamp, which is, <laughs> I, I think, a stop making sense uh, homage. Mm-hmm. And the one lamp. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, uh, having people stand off stage and perform through the curtain, um, having them do like marching band, complicated cadence routines, having them stand in and out of various uh, lights, just there's every song has kind of like a different visual element to it that really helps break up the concert film feeling that you get sometimes of like working your way through an album. I feel like this is the point where we have to talk about the feet. 
<laughs> just generally or this or the toe jam song oh, i mean the, the to, i mean i i loved that toe jam song and i know that some people are really squeamish about feet and may have issues with that but you know to them i say i think you are you are missing out on sort of a a i'll say kind of rawness uh kind of yeah. informality like it, yeah. it, we, we go back well, to the intimacy idea. yeah yeah the the song about how everybody's coming to my house it does kind of feel like you came over to their house and you know they're of course they're not wearing shoes they're walking around on their own carpets right i mean like feet are a very personal thing like like what i kept thinking about is how everyone's feet are kind of specific to them and like when you know someone when you love someone when you've spent a lot of time with them like you know what their feet look like <laughs> you know and like there's also of course the whole idea of you know you don't wear shoes coming into this world you don't wear shoes going out of this world it's a very sort of baseline humanity image i think too just having all these feet but then in the toe jam sequence in particular like having these close ups on all these different pairs of feet, all sort of distinguished from each other in various ways. And they're all dancing a little differently. And it's just this, I think it's this really lovely example of collective individuality. You know, like we all have feet, we all use them in the same way, but we all use them a little differently too. And I just, I I really loved the feet. And I loved how much Spike Lee focused on them, especially <laughs> in the toe. I mean, like, obviously there's the joke of the song is called Toe Jam. Yes, it's funny. But I think like it goes well beyond the joke. I think there is something more there beyond just like feet are kind of weird. <laughs> feet are pretty weird though. And that song yeah. is really weird. I, I think that song is definitely the weirdest uh, one in the entire show. In terms it's kind of, of an outlier too on his discography, isn't it? I'm looking at Keith more yeah, here. For sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are songs that are in the film that are more notable than the discography, right? I mean, that comes from a um, collaboration with a British electronic act. Uh, or it's definitely Slim, right? Brighton Port Authority, because I, I know it mostly from the song. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a project of, of Norman Cook, better known as Fatboy Slim. How did you feel about the mix of like old news songs, the kind of the American utopia songs and Talking Heads classics? They're all kind of mixed up in here. I didn't get too hung up on it, but I, I mean, I, I do think American Utopia is, is a, a very good album. I think anything is going to not quite stand up to <laughs> these songs <laughs> you've heard uh, your entire life uh, that, are, that are kind of towering classics. But the more I, time I spend with the show, you know, seeing it live, seeing the movie, uh, I think they fit together really well. And I, I think the selection of Talking Head songs, he's choosing to kind of complement and, and reflect on the American Utopia songs is, is quite is quite savvy. So. Um, yeah, I think it works. Something I kept thinking of, and I, I, someone's already noted, maybe in the previous episode, sort of the obsession with home and houses uh, that, you know, or not even obsession, but just a motif, I guess, that pops up a lot uh, in Burn and Talking Head songs. And, you know, we've kind of talked on this podcast before about how every film feels like a quarantainment <laughs> film mm. these days. But this one really did feel heightened by watching it during a pandemic 
uh, experience, not just because obviously it was filmed on Broadway and Broadway is dark until next June right now, which is just really kind of heartbreaking, but also the fixation on home and but also connection and connection through technology. It all just feels so reflective of this moment of being like trapped in our houses and talking to people through screens and trying to find some connection to other people and the outside world. Yeah, it felt really poignant in a context that uh, obviously Byrne couldn't have predicted, but that's sort of how it goes with the every movie is a quarantine <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah. uh. Oh, d- it, well, it, it, the reinforcement of everybody's coming to my house at the end with them all biking, all getting on their yeah. bikes, and which is a David Byrne thing. He does, <laughs> he leaves events, he gets on his bicycle, and he goes, puddles mm-hmm. away, but now everybody else goes with him. It's, it's uh, again, nothing that could happen it would be a solitary ride now but it's <laughs> not a solitary ride in the movie which would have been filmed right before things shut down right it wasn't pretty close to yeah i believe so which is upsetting but um song wise I, I was you know i mean obviously there's some classics here i mean I, don't worry about the government is probably my favorite talking head song so that's kind of good to see that early but there was like there were some songs i had never heard before like glass concrete and stone which mm-hmm. one of my f- favorite songs on the in the show? I never heard that at all. It, it, it's and that's a fairly obscure one, isn't it's it? A deep, you... It's a deep cut it's from early, like a two thousand four album. It was like a Burn Solo thing too, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. it wasn't like a yeah. Talking Heads album, but no, no, no. I love that. That was kind of great to experience. It's a, it's a nice mix of songs you know and songs you don't. And obviously the Janelle Monae cover is incredible, and the progression of it seems to work. And, it, and the song selection is deliberate and reinforces the themes he's trying to explore with it. It all flows quite nicely together. It's a very tight show. I mean, it's not. It feels proportionally right you know it's not over long it's substantive it works it builds to something as Genevieve was saying you know from sort of burning down the house on it kind of knows it's sequenced in the right way for maximum impact I'm glad that he took the time with Hell You Tom Bout to explain where it was from, mm-hmm. how he had encountered it, to kind of explain how he spoke to Janelle Monet about, you know, the propriety of an older white man doing a cover of this song, doing this song live, uh, because it really contextualizes it in a way that seems really important right now. Like, the appropriation of this anger could be seen as inappropriate, or it could be seen as allyship. But knowing that he thought about it, that he took the time to ask permission and getting the response that he got from her, which is, you know, this song is for everyone, I think really becomes an important piece of context uh, before what ends up being a very powerful performance. It certainly motivated me to go seek out the original, which I had not seen the video for that uh, song previously. And Ooh, it's a uh, it's powerful, painful, righteously angry stuff. If anything, if I have a quibble about American Utopia, it's that I wanted more of that righteous mm. anger. I had been led to expect a very political show, and <laughs> I feel like that didn't pay off quite as much as I was expecting. You know, the the segment where he stops and talks about voting and what twenty percent of an audience looks like, and how. 20% of people vote in local elections and those 20 people are 20% of people are determining your future and your children's future like that's all hot stuff i actually kind of wanted more of that context and 
the spoken word segments of this are relatively slight and far between, at least compared to what I was expecting. I honestly could have done with more of it, just because it so fits my mood right now. And having somebody who is kind of putting on that like elder statesman, representative, and all around like competent person and outreach person and communication person and outrage person persona, like <laughs> I, I could have done with a lot more of it and not gotten tired of it. I'd almost say though that gesture is unusual for him. I mean, to be of a sort of straightforward political commentary or a direct political commentary, that's not necessarily the David Byrne way. I mean, things seem to be addressed, you know, in a much more roundabout fashion. I mean, you know, sometimes with a certain even kind of ironic detachment. So I think it almost makes those moments when it does get political pop a little bit more. Yeah, I think offstage, he's never really been shy about what his politics were, but it doesn't always find its way into the songwriting as directly as what that expression there. Right. Well, we definitely see that kind of roundabout approach to addressing the state of America in true stories, which is a, a very different tone of project. We're going to bring these two films together and look at the connections between them coming up next. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thank you. The next song was written by the actress and singer Janelle Monet. She sang it at the Women's March in Washington a few years ago. I was there. I wrote to her a little bit afterwards and asked what she would think of a white man of a certain age singing this particular song. The reason will be clear in a minute. She loved the idea. She said the song is for everyone. It is for humanity. It'll be obvious the song's a protest song. It's also a requiem. A requiem for lives that have been senselessly taken. I also see the song as being about possibility. The possibility of change. Not just in the imperfect world out there, but in myself, too. I also need to change. Now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about the things that they have in common. Genevieve, you brought up the obsession with home. That was actually something that I had put on this list as something that we should talk about, because you identified where we see it in American Utopia, but I see it so much in true stories as well. With Byrne driving through the streets, like talking about prefab buildings mm. and the things that they house and how they've come to change in terms of aesthetic and design for the modern age, you know, with Swoozie Kurt's character never, not only never leaving her home, but never leaving the floor of her home that she's mm -hmm. on with the little vision of the cute woman's house, which is just disgustingly Rococo uh, decorated in all <laughs> I of loved this it. cute stuff. It felt like somewhere you would like pay $5 to go take Instagram photos in 2020. <laughs> we see a lot of people's personal spaces in true stories, and they inevitably reflect who they are. The, the yoga woman that Lewis gamely dates and tries to do Lotus position for, <laughs> that 
the room that she's in just has the feeling of like a teenager's loft bedroom and mm-hmm. sort of a claimed space in a house that wasn't necessarily meant to uh, to feel like a room. It just it feels very uh, childish and organic in a kind of a way. We see a lot of different people's homes from the inside, including Pop Staples' home and uh, religious practitioner space. All of them are very specific. All of them very much reflect the personalities of these these very specific characters. So when he's singing about home and what it means in American Utopia, you get this feeling that he is projecting this sense of like belonging, the sense of separation from society and a kind of a space where you can define yourself, as we saw in his previous film. And at the same time, so there's like the other side of this like fixation on home is the fixation on houses, like the building of houses and the, you you know, like the actual structures. Obviously, this must be the place and this is not my beautiful house and and all that. But in true stories, the little scene of the, well, first of all, where he's like driving by all these like very similar houses with their four car garages and kind of commenting on the beauty of them, like when you or like when you leave a place and come back and sort of like appreciate the beauty of the mundane. It's something like I really related to as someone who semi recently moved back to the suburb in which I grew up and like have, you know, been walking these streets that I haven't walked in 20 years and kind of noticing like some real, I guess, beauty or some, you know, aesthetic pleasure, I guess, in just like a row of suburban houses (laughs) that I never thought twice about before. And then later in True Stories, there's that scene where the, I guess the developer is like kind of talking to him about the, like pointing out where there will soon be houses, you know, as far as the eye can see. So, you know, on the one hand, he has this sort of obsession with home and interior spaces and the people who are there. And then he seems to have this other sort of fixation on like housing as an extension of American capitalism and, you know, all these ideas of, you know, manifest destiny and an urban sprawl. And they don't quite fit together naturally, but they're also, like I said, two sides of the same coin. It's like, uh, my building has every convenience. Yes, it's that one. Make yes. life easy for me. Right. <laughs> it's going to be easy to get things done. Go. <laughs> I will relax along with my loved ones. Loved ones. Loved ones. Loved ones. <laughs> Visit the building. Take the highway. Park in. Come up and see me. I'll be working. Work. I told you my fa- it was my favorite talking to you. Well, now I'm really sad I, I scripted that line about how uh, not once in this lifetime were you going to sing on this podcast. I, well, I, I mean, clearly should have just given you a solo. Like, a song like that is within my vocal register. I can handle that one. Um, well, to, though, I mean, again, so there's that kind of like contradictory thing with Byrne where he will give you this. It does feel like critique, but sincere at the same time. And it's hard to tell one from the other. And Don't Worry About the Government is a song that... I think is more on the detachment side, but I mean, you could see how and this is another important thing, I guess, about burn and collaboration too, is that how, when he talks about this song in American Utopia about coming to my house and the story about this Detroit high school that did a rendition of it, that kind of changed the entire meaning of the song for him, you know, cause he, the, you know, the ambiguity that he felt was built into the song, the narration of the song about, how this guy felt about people being at his house changed into something a much more positive feeling, I guess, when other people came and interpreted it their way and gave it a different 
flavor. And I think it's something where the collaborative side of David Byrne ends up having value because what other people bring to it, what these musicians in American Utopia bring to it, what the actors in True Stories bring to his work gives it a different inflection. I think he's fascinated by what happens when that kind of magic happens. You know, it's probably worth talking about another similarity they have, which is the collective celebration of both films. And it involves concerts. You know, True Stories builds to a celebration of, of specialness. And <laughs> this is uh, obviously, you know, there's a celebratory quality to it. It's, it's, um, it's a show called American Utopia, uh, not, not accidentally. And I, I think that's, in some ways, that's what connects them the most is it is sort of a, you know, songs, they're both songs about America, different places in time. I mean, in this case, though, I think there's a little more, uh, you get more flavors of, of celebration and not all, not all celebratory. There's some really grim uh, and sort of, uh, you know, angry stuff in, in, in American Utopia uh, as well. Is, is that the biggest difference, do you think? I mean, between the, the, the closing concert of True Stories and, and what we see now, or is one kind of a sequel to the other? I think with American Utopia, again, it kind of goes back to that idea of catharsis more than celebration, you know, mm. and again, to go back to that hell you talking about performance, like, obviously, that's not celebratory. But we're saying their names, you know, we're recognizing these people. And I guess it is sort of a celebration of their lives, sir, very briefly, albeit in this very grim context. And I think that's why that part is so affecting and made <laughs> me cry so much and, and made Tasha cry. It's like, it's not just that it's sad that these people died. It's the power of recognizing them in this loud, vocal way. And that feels, again, not quite like celebration, but it also doesn't feel like mourning. It's a celebration of anger. It's a celebration yeah, of power. Yeah. It's a celebration of memory, of forming patterns and recognition. It's defiantly bringing these people back from the dead to mm -hmm. serve a purpose, you know, so that their deaths might have some meaning more than the meaning that they had. There is a celebration to that song, but th there's also just like a collective rousing of people's righteous rage that feels very appropriate to the moment. In part, though, when I put collective celebration through music on this list, I was thinking both of the Wild Wildlife Lip Sync celebration mm. and kind of mm. both how that plays for individual people jumping up on stage and how it plays for the audience that's present, uh, that seems to just be enjoying this spectacle of all of these people jumping up to shake their moneymakers, and how that kind of reflects into everything we see in American Utopia, the celebration of that competence of physical and musical virtuosity that we see in American Utopia, whether the songs are sad or angry or wry or funny or teaching or artistic, they all just seem to me have like a kind of a celebratory sense to them because they feel like a party because of the way they've been staged, the way they've been choreographed as this kind of like jam band feeling. I did like, there's a local event that happens when local events are 
allowed to happen and people are allowed to gather in Chicago every full moon from- <laughs> I knew you were going to go to there. <laughs> yeah, late, late spring to early fall. That's like a drum jam and fire spinning gathering. And I kept missing that gathering, that feeling of just like people coming together to create a spontaneous creative experience, because there's a lot of drumming in this uh, in American Utopia. It's a little reminiscent of Stomp in the same sort of way, you know, people using their bodies and using all of these percussion instruments to create something fast-paced and propulsive, but with all of these different kind of percussive threads interleaved with each other. Like all of that to me feels celebratory, just of like collective effort, of collective skill, regardless of the the actual emotion of the song. Maybe it's because the two dancers rarely stop smiling. Mm-hmm. They just they seem to be just having such a time experiencing all of us on stage, no matter where the songs are going. I've kind of felt like that was best reflected in true stories in the wild, wild life moment. I'm also just realizing we haven't talked about the very end of American Utopia, where they they leave the stage and go out into the audience singing Road to Nowhere. And again, kind of talking about sort of the combination of like cynicism and wonder in Burns music. That's a, a very kind of apt choice, you know, to be singing during the moment of the most connection to go back to sort of what the main theme of American Utopia is the most connection between the people on stage and the audience, you know, they're in the audience, they can everyone's singing, everyone's part of this collective celebration to, <laughs> to put it in terms of the of the connection. And it feels like uh, such a perfect thing for that to be building to this, you know, the show that starts with burn alone on stage with the brain, you know, it, it doesn't get more internal than that. And it just slowly grows. And there's all these moments of acknowledgement of the collective effort on stage. Also in American Utopia, there's the talking about how, yes, we're making all of this sound on stage, everyone's playing their instruments, everyone gets a little showcase and gets introduced. Another sort of, I feel, homage to Stop Making Sense, which does a similar thing. So it just like kind of grows and grows this sense of like, we're all making this thing, we're making this moment together. And it sort of ends with bringing the audience into that as well. And actually, Keith, I wanted to ask if the tour uh, included that as well, or if that was specific to the Broadway production. I was going to ask you, actually, would you say this film ended physically, uh, you know, an emotion, with an emotional outpouring among other people, and it began somewhat cerebrally? Uh, my name is Scott Tobias. That was my joke. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I actually can't remember. I don't think so. I, I don't r- – it was several years ago, and yeah. I don't you, think there you was. You don't remember being incredibly uncomfortable with performers coming. Which would have made me feel utterly mortified. But we were uh, pretty close to the stage, so uh, I don't think it. I, I think it, if it did happen, I, I would remember it. But um, I, I don't remember everything. It is kind of perfect. I mean, there's a thing here in True Stories as well of just the idea of being progressive, of moving forward, of even in the dark moments and. American utopia of being there's some path ahead. You a know, road to and, nowhere, might you say? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe not nowhere. Maybe the road is somewhere. But like that you can kind of defiant optimism sort of hangs over both films. That optimism is tied to collective experience and collective power and a true belief in community and, and how collaboration and community can kind of transform 
art and politics and make life better. So that kind of comes through in both movies for me. And can also just kind of transform people. I mean, when you see Byrne at the beginning of this film, holding up the brain and talking in this very serious way, he looks very old, particularly to somebody who just watched True Stories. He's 68. And I would say at the beginning of this film, he looks considerably older with kind of his like his white flyaway hair and his very seamed face, and his kind of uh, rigid posture. But the dancing it seems to make him younger. And when you're <laughs> up in his face during Road to Nowhere, he kind of looks like a kid when he's got the big goofy grin on his face as he's uh, charging around the audience. He looks so young. And I began this film thinking, my God, how much he's aged since 86. Like, thank goodness I haven't aged at all since 86. That would be terrible. Uh, but, but you know, by the end of the, the film, he, he looks young, at least to me. I like how doable the choreography is in this yeah. film for him. Like, like there, I can't remember what song it is, but there was like some piece of choreography where, where it's him and then the two other singer dancers in almost like, like a, kind moving of a tri- him. triangle form. And he's just doing like these little hand and feet motions. It's yeah. like, yeah, you know, if I'm a 68 year old doing a stage show that's that's long, that is a that is about as dynamic as I would want the choreography to get, and it's kind of perfect. <laughs> I would say that the choreography is maybe a little more difficult than it appears, especially what the dancers are, sure, are doing. Sure, but, um, but for burn, but yeah, they you know. they they accommodate burn for sure. I, uh, again kind of literally in the part where they are actually moving his limbs which i which I, I liked just real quick before we leave this connection actually this isn't really i guess part of this connection but it is like one of those little sort of random things that tasha likes to to know like random uh, small connections that uh, you didn't necessarily think of but going back to the road to nowhere which I think is actually a kind of an optimistic song. It's like, we're mm-hmm. on a ride. We don't know where we're going, but but we're going there, <laughs> you know? But uh, And then in True Stories, it kind of ends on a road to nowhere. Or like, or is, I don't know if it's the exact final moment, but we do have sort of a, a shot of the car going on a, a long road to who knows where. Yeah, you then know? you get the, the <laughs> you girl know? and then you get uh, the roll credits. Uh, roll credits roll over that road. Of course, yeah. So that counts as a connection, right? Sure. <laughs> I don't want to sign on the list, but I think it's worth talking about is the David Byrne that narrates true stories and the David Byrne that speaks on the stage is a different David Byrne than the David Byrne you encounter in interviews. Mm. And the David Byrne that you encounter uh, in this show as well. It's so weird. The first time I heard, and it was only a couple years ago, I think that I really heard David Byrne just sort of naturally speaking. He was hosting a serious XM. I was like, that's not David Byrne. David Byrne has like <laughs> a really clipped cadence and it has like uh, the, the sort of strange lifts and intonation. And, and uh, this is just some normal guy. But I, I feel like it's more the normal guy that shows up as your host for the Broadway show. Am I, am I wrong there? I, you know, I haven't listened to David Byrne interviews, but I did read a bunch of them leading up to this, just kind of uh, to get a sense for what he's said in the past, specifically about true stories. And I did get that same impression. I was just like, he sounds really wooly to me in text interviews, like the whole business where he's not really sure who got the directorial credit on uh, true stories, or where somebody asks him a very specific question about Errol Morris's influence on him, and he proceeds to talk talk about uh, Fellini and the European directorial stamp of visuals. He sounds smart, but he also sounds just like 
I don't know, very disorganized. Like he's got a billion things going on in his head at once and uh, can't keep track of the question. And nothing about seeing him in either of these films suggests that kind of like, I don't know, galaxy brain cloud thinking. Uh, he just, he seems so sharp and specific and focused in the stuff that he's scripted for himself. And maybe his art is about kind of like winnowing down all of the things he's thinking at once into like one pointed idea at a time. Another connection I saw between these two films, and I've already kind of alluded to it in the first part of this discussion, but just is the, I don't even want to say fixation, but sort of the awareness and the acknowledgement of technology and technological innovation and the ways in which it fosters human connection, which is sort of a, a human connection is a connection between these two films. But I think that is kind of obvious. But uh, specifically, the way that technology sort of fosters it. I was really struck by the moment in American Utopia where Byrne takes a little bit to talk about uh, the wireless technology that allows these musicians to roam the stage freely, to interact freely, unencumbered by wires or stands or microphones, and to roam out into the audience. You know, it's not something that you need to acknowledge or you need to think about. Like, you could enjoy this show and not know about the state-of-the-art wireless technology that facilitates it. But in drawing our attention to it, it does make us think about humanity's relationship to technological advances. And yes, it's certainly a double-edged sword. And I think that is acknowledged in true stories, sort of with the talk of, you know, the future and computers and whatnot. And also the moment I mentioned in the first half of Swoozie Kurtz and the television and just kind of barking exclamations <laughs> in, in response to it and the isolation of that. But again, you know, the cynical version of that is she's isolated. The optimistic version of that is she's finding human connection. She finds a husband <laughs> through the television. You know, she finds love maybe through the television. I think Byrne does, well, Byrne does have a, a, a respect uh, for technology and what it, and how it can facilitate not just human connection, but also art, which it does in American Utopia very explicitly. I think American Utopia is, I mean, there's just a lot of pride and excitement about how technology made the show possible. Mm -hmm. And he was excited enough about that to talk about it. I think in True Stories, it's a little bit more ambivalent, the, mm -hmm. the um, film's understanding of technology. I think its attitude toward the main business in town, which is about creating hardware, is not as dark as you might expect. I mean, I think, I right. think there's kind of a certain amount of respect and wonder towards what's being made but then you do get to swoozy kurtz and her situation I, and i don't think like having her being fed by, by like a robot spoon the or robot. anything just multiple robots she does have yeah she's like polly in rocky four at least before the director's cut um uh, and so uh, so yeah i uh but i i wouldn't say that we're to consider any of that to be you know, a great thing, though I guess things ultimately work out for her. But once you get to American Utopia, I think there's just a, there's an openness to that 
possibility he even talks in the american utopia about people meeting through apps <laughs> you're like, right he's addressing the audience like half of you uh met through apps and half of you don't need, uh, need them or something he doesn't bring the attitude of advancing ages kind of have toward technology which is suspicion and fear he is that's not really his way of looking yeah. at things i think he still likes to see the possibilities of the future and what technology can do to make life better I mean, if anything, there's sort of a charming naivete in both films about technology. You know, the the idea that computers are changing the world in some abstract way that means now more of our astronauts are reading poetry. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how A connects to B, but there are computers and astronauts didn't used to read poetry and now that's changing like it's just it's all a big cloud of like positivity moving forward everything's going to be great people are no longer motivated by money in their jobs so they're gonna have to be motivated by getting to heaven the same sort of thing that Byrne talks about in terms of maybe if he watches tv all the time he'll be able to connect to people better there's sort of a distant ironic like laughter in that statement, he's looking back on a younger, more naive version of himself, and he knows that he got it wrong. But at the same time, he doesn't spell that out. He doesn't say, and here's the disastrous results of trying mm-hmm. to live my life that way. He just sort of presents it to us as a blue sky attitude towards technology and leaves us to fill in any uh, dystopic results. It leaves us to kind of like look at our own lives and see, like, are we reading poetry? Are we reading astronaut poetry? Are we spending too much time watching the TV in search of connection? He kind of brings these things up as ideas and then doesn't scold us about them, either about having these attitudes ourselves or uh, about what we're doing with technology. He just kind of invites us to think about the idea. Yeah, here's what it would look like if you were being uh, fed by a robot. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? It's certainly a different thing. And then he just kind of leaves it all in your in your hands. Yeah, I think that's that is something that definitely unites both films. It's like, have you ever considered this? Here's a song about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we all look forward to uh, what kind of movie he's going to make 30 years from now and what kind of issues he's going to be uh, asking us to consider and then singing songs about. Until that comes out, True Stories is streaming on the usual digital rental services and is available in a Criterion edition on DVD or Blu-ray. David Byrne's American Utopia is streaming on HBO Max and is optimistically scheduled to return to Broadway in September 2021. Uh, If you want to buy your tickets now, they're available. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show, in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I'm going to get to what's been good for me lately, but first I just want to give like brief shout-outs to two other sort of films that I thought about recommending in conjunction with American Utopia, but then realized that I have already suggested them both on, on previous episodes. One is the aforementioned Passing Strange, which I really do love a lot. Please seek it out if you haven't before. And then the other one I had completely forgotten about until your intro to this episode, Tasha, which is Contemporary Color, the Ross Brothers sort of 
I guess, concert film featuring David Byrne and a bunch of other musicians, including St. Vincent, and a bunch of Color Guard uh, (laughs) performances. It's a really, really cool film. I'll just leave it at that. Passing Strange Contemporary Color. Check them out if you want a little more of this vibe uh, from American Utopia. The actual recommendation I want to give is a film called What the Constitution Means to Me, which is a filmed version of a play that was actually running on Broadway at the same time as American Utopia. This one is a mostly one-woman show by Heidi Schreck, who uses her prior experience as a teenager who competed in constitutional debate contests to reconsider and recontextualize our nation's founding document. I realize that may sound kind of dry, but please believe me when I tell you it is anything but. Shrek is a phenomenal storyteller and manages to interweave the personal and political in a way that feels both unexpected and profoundly accurate, particularly as she delves into the quote-unquote penumbra of the Ninth Amendment, which addresses rights retained by the people that are not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. And when the show does divert from the one-woman format, it does so thoughtfully and even spectacularly, particularly in its climax, which if you've heard anything about the show, you probably know something about. But I'm going to avoid spoiling it just in case, because it is truly the highlight of the program. But Honestly, it's kind of all highlight. Um, As we're recording this, we are staring down Election Day 2020, uh, though unfortunately you won't hear this until well after that, uh, which is a shame because this is kind of essential election season viewing, in my opinion. Um, But it will still be available to watch on Amazon Prime, and it will still be great and definitely worth your time and attention, uh, what the Constitution means to me. Has any of you seen it yet? I know I've been haranguing all of you. I I mean, it's just there. It's right there. Yeah. Prime. It's really good. I expect you all to have watched it by the next time we talk. (laughs) Uh, But for now, Keith, what do you got for us? So I got got a political thing and I feel like I'm going to say this movie and it's like, oh, wait, you've never seen this before because I just never gotten to it. It's a big one. I've never seen Z uh, before. Uh, Costa Gavras' film inspired by an actual assassination in in 60s Greece. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing piece of filmmaking, uh, very on the ground, middle of the action, at times almost documentary like, but also kind of hallucinatory account of that where they kind of circles back and shows different versions of it. But my main takeaway from it is like, this is a, a, a very tiny film about how if you just tell a lie enough you can kind of force people to take it as the truth because in the wake of this uh, assassination which many people witness it's it's the official story is a, a drunk driving accident you know the autopsy comes back and it says otherwise you know people actually saw it but because the people in power can push this story they do their best to try to do that and an actual you know pre- you know if the truth prevails it's only through a lot of hard work and then not always too I, I thought it was uh, you know in, in, in a era of, of strongmen and uh uh, quote unquote fake news and so on and so forth. Um, it seemed an unusually timely film, so I'd recommend that. It's got it's got a cast. It's got a good cast. It's got uh, Yves Montand. It's got uh, Jean Louis Trinjant. Uh, you know, and it's got a great soundtrack too. I've actually been listening to the soundtrack quite a bit uh, since watching this film. So Z, the Costa Gavras. It's on Criterion. That's where I watch it. I think it's available elsewhere as well. Tasha, how about you? Well, as previously foretold or teased, I was thinking because of that letter about Martin, I was thinking a lot about this film that I saw earlier this year called The Transfiguration. It's from 2016, but it's 
relatively obscure. I found out about it um, in accordance with this piece that I was uh, putting together from like one of Letterboxd's best finds, uh, this man named Adam Davey, who's assembled this massive, massive list of Black life on film and has split it up into genre lists. So it's a very easy to find, you know, an action movie uh, with Black protagonists or a horror movie or a lot of much more obscure subgenres, like whatever it is to your particular taste. And when I was talking to him about kind of like what he would most recommend from this list, we went through and picked one from every category. And his horror pick was The Transfiguration, which I'd never heard of before. It's heavily modeled after, I would say, a combination of Martin and Let the Right One In. It's about a young black boy in the projects who believes that he's a vampire. And much like the protagonist of Martin, he doesn't have fangs. He doesn't do any of the traditional vampire stuff, but he's obsessed with vampire lore, with watching movies and reading books about vampires and trying to understand himself. And as a result, he's kind of a loner. He's withdrawn. He's very, very nerdy in a way that seems like people that you've perhaps met uh, much more than it seems like a nerd portrayal that you'd normally see in film. He's just this loner that's entirely obsessed with this uh, particular belief system he has and exploring it. And then he meets this young troubled woman who's also living in the area due to family problems. And their relationship starts to feel a bit like Let the Right One In, but the writer-director, Michael O'Shea, is going in a very different uh, and in many ways more symbolic uh, kind of direction with the whole thing. In the same way as Martin, which it does explicitly reference, like just about every point in the film where you might think, is this a little too on the nose? Is it is a little too clearly taken from X vampire film? It's because they're leading up to a discussion of X vampire film or, mm -hmm. or book. It's a very self-aware, almost meta kind of story. But it's also just, it's a little bit of a coming of age story. It's a little bit of a loner outcast story. And it's very, very much its own thing. Uh, and it, much like Martin, it leads to a pretty unforgettable and, uh, a deeply emotionally traumatizing ending. Uh, but I enjoyed isn't the right word for this film. I respected it a lot. And <laughs> it, it really had me going in terms of like, what is this film trying to do? Where are we going with it? Do I sympathize with his character or not? Do I want him to succeed at anything that he's doing or not? Like, how should I feel about him? And when the film tells you for certain how you should feel about him. It's one of the shocking, the most shocking things I think I've experienced in cinema in a long time. So uh, yeah, The Transfiguration 2016, it's on Canopy, it's on Shudder, and it's rentable on uh, the usual services. I was not aware of this movie at all. So this is kind of exciting to me. <laughs> it's sort of an indie film that's smart and references Martin and other vampire movies that i'm it's exciting i don't know i don't know if it's really for you scott how what? do you how do you feel about violence i love it Is oh it okay yeah then, then you'll be fine oh great <laughs> uh how about you scott what do you think well so i've been since um jeff bridges announced his uh -huh. cancer diagnosis which is very upsetting but uh, you know i guess early right early detection he'll be fine i've been had occasion to go through uh his filmography a bit and uh you know revisit some films I, i'd seen before see some films i hadn't and i really wanted to emphasize how on this podcast how great a film fat city is fat city is a late john houston uh, film from the early 70s starring stacy keach 
and Jeff Bridges. And it's a boxing film, which in boxing films are, are the best. I mean, there's been no sport that comes close in, to accumulating <laughs> as many good films as the sport of boxing. And it starts with Stacey Keach as this former fighter, really, you know, who in current bar fly, who kind of, you know, decides on a whim to try to go back to the gym and he meets uh, Jeff Bridges who who is a young guy who's never fought before and uh, he sees something in the Bridges character which is maybe you know someone who's going to eventually be the same <laughs> never was that he was as a boxer and so he takes him to his old trainer and the movie sort of moves from there but it is an incredible character piece that is one of the most lived in movies you'll ever see it's like it takes place in Stockton California very seedy Conrad Hall shot the film and he's a, he's a real real master and it's just got like this just the bars the spaces in this film like every the, the gyms you know the, the kind of like really low rent you know arenas for these fights you know where a lot of non-prospects are kind of beating each other up for a hundred bucks everything is so perfectly realized it's got a couple of wonderful supporting performances it's got one by susan terrell plays a you know a bar fly that stacy keach becomes involved in who's just completely wild uh but also sort of tragic uh, it's got a really lovable performance by uh nicholas uh, colasanto who would later be coach on cheers he is the trainer <laughs> and has the same attitude i mean he has got a certain amount of you know optimism about his boxers even though they don't really succeed there's this amazing sequence where he takes like four of his boxers including jeff bridges in his first fight and all of them lose <laughs> and all of them end up bloodied and it's just it gets it you know it just gets what that the milieu is just so gorgeous and so well realized and the characters are so resonant it's available on amazon prime and uh, a, a true true masterpiece so i would recommend checking it out if you haven't fat city I second that one. Do you, do you feel there really wasn't a lot of set dressing involved in making that film? I mean, it feel, that's what I'm saying. It feels that lived in. But but at the same time, I think it's Richard Silbert was the production designer. And he's, mm, he's like okay. one of the greatest of all time. So I wouldn't put it past an artist of that caliber to provide these spaces because, uh, yeah, it really feels almost documentary-like, but just so vivid. I just, I was stunned by how good it was. I remembered it being great and it it is. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Fat City. Well, thank you all for the recommendations. We'll need something to uh, keep us warm as uh, winter is coming. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out November 17th and 24th. Scott, what's coming up? Nearly a decade after his superb debut feature, Martha Marcy May Marlene, director Sean Durkin has finally returned with The Nest, a similarly chilly and chilling drama about a marriage in decline. Set in the 1980s, the film stars Jude Law as Rory O'Hara, a would-be corporate master of the universe type who drags his family from America to England for another shot at a big payday. But when they move to an isolated estate outside London, the cracks in his relationship to his wife, played by Carrie Coon, and his two children only widen further. The way Durkin situates this tense family dynamic within the context of the era reminded us of The Ice Storm, Ang Lee's 1997 adaptation of the Rick Moody novel. Set in New Canaan, Connecticut in the 1970s, The Ice Storm is about how the libertine values of the counterculture seep into two suburban marriages and the effect it has on their children. 
If you want to play along with our pairing at your own dysfunctional home, you can find The Nest on VOD on November 17th, and The Ice Storm is available for rent on all major streaming services. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of true stories, American Utopia, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? I'm a freelance writer. You can follow my uh, my adventures on Twitter at kfips 3000 I write for places like uh, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide, Mel, all kinds of wonderful pu- – Rolling Stone, all kinds of wonderful publications. Genevieve, how about you? I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Uh Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, The Ringer, The Vulture, uh, The Guardian, other fine publications. Tasha? I'm the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. What have you been waiting for this whole time? What can we possibly say that would convince you after all this time? I mean, Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Ready?